Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. My name is Neil, and I have the great privilege of being able to read the scriptures to you. The scripture found this morning is in Acts chapter 1, and it's verses 1 through 14. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. We, uh, we just passed uh, Christmas and New Year's, right? Like two of the biggest holidays of the year. It's, uh, it's actually a great blessing that we live in a country that gives us um, statutory holidays, that gives us some of those days off. And, um, and I don't know if you're like me, but as you're going through the year, you're kind of looking towards this time of year because you never get like two holidays like that back-to-back weekends. So basically, many of you probably went away or you took extra days off because you, you know, and it felt like you forgot you had a job, you forgot you went to school, just to remind you of all those things on Sunday that if they haven't come crashing back to your reality, will tomorrow. Um, but we have these back-to-back holidays, one weekend and then the next weekend. The interesting thing is, in a sense, Christmas and New Year's have nothing to do with each other. Um, like if you, like Christmas, oftentimes, even the way we celebrate them is quite different. Like if I was to say to you, oh, after the service, we're going to watch a Christmas movie. You would have, think there's probably going to be some nice feelings. It'll be a little bit cheesy. There'll be some moment where everybody comes back together and hugs. Or if I said to you, we're going to watch a movie about New Year's Eve. 
it would not be about hugging and whatever. It, it would be chaos. There would be car crashes. There would be people jumping off buildings, people drinking too much, um, you know, un unidentified drinking injuries the next day, right? Like, they're just two totally different things. And in fact, like, millions and millions and millions of people around the world went to a Christmas Eve service a couple of weeks ago. And, and they probably sang Silent Night, and it was probably quiet, and they probably dressed up nicely. And then a week later, they were drinking their faces off. You know, uh, may, maybe the same people, some of them, but like just two, right? They don't seem to, they seem to be two totally different kinds of holidays, and yet we sort of put them back to back and lump them together. But here's the thing. As Christians, like as followers of Jesus, we understand these two weekends have everything to do with each other. And here's why. Even though sort of historically, biblically, they don't, because, you know, a few important people at a certain time in history, many, many hundreds of years ago, decided that January 1st would be the beginning of the new year to say, well, okay, spiritually speaking, biblically speaking, historically speaking, they don't have any connection, but they actually do. See, New Year's, and we're like seven days, right, into the new year, is this time of year that we begin to look forward to what's ahead. And <clears throat> many of us sort of decide to, you know, as the old saying goes, to turn over a new leaf. In other words, to look back and say, oh man, there were some things about last year that I wish I could get back. You know, uh, some things I said I was going to do and I kind of failed to do, or some things that I did that I wish I hadn't have done. And so this new year kind of, even though it's just another day in the calendar, it gives us an opportunity of pause and we begin to say, okay, like, I want to do things differently in the year ahead. I want to change. And many of you make New Year's resolutions. And the rest of you sort of laugh at those people who make New Year's resolutions. And maybe you're kind of cynical about them because you think like, oh, I've made those before. I've seen you make those before. And nothing's really changed. The truth is, whether you make New Year's resolutions or not, I think every one of us should have that feeling at the beginning of the New Year saying, I want this year to be different. In truth, because if we're honest, and I'm not going to ask you to put up your hand or come up and give a speech about it, but there are things that you did last year that you wish you could get back. There are things you said last year that you wish you hadn't have said. There are things you did that you wish you hadn't have done. There are things you should have done that in your heart you feel like, man, I should have done that. I missed an opportunity. There are things you should have said that you didn't say. And I think we're not all we're meant to be as human beings if we don't stop for a moment at this turn of the year and say, I want to change. I want to be a better version of myself in the year ahead than I was. Because the truth is, the people you love need you to be a better version of yourself. Even if you don't think you need to change, here's a newsflash for you, the people around you think you do right? Like if we really love the people who are closest to us, if I really love my wife, if I really love my children, if I really love this family at Upper Room, then I need to change. I can't just do what I did last year or not do what I didn't do. I need to change. I need to grow. There's a human desire, I think, in us, and we suppress it sometimes out of cynicism or out of guilt or out of a sense of failure, but there's something in us that says, you know what? <clears throat> This has got to be the year where I stop doing that thing that I keep trying to stop doing. This has got to be the year where I start doing that thing that I've been saying for years I'm going to do. Because if I really care about the people around me, <clears throat> I have to change. If I really love them, 
I need to listen to them because they've been asking me to change. Maybe outwardly or maybe just subtly, you know. Friends, if we really take our role in the world seriously, we know the world needs to change. There are so many things that happened in our world last year that, God forbid, are repeated again this year. Right? There are so many things that we say, I hope that never happens again. And yet the question is, well, how are we going to know? How is that going to happen unless individuals, you and I, men and women, young and old, look at ourselves and say, I have to change? You know, before kingdoms can change, men and women have to change. And so if we really care about the world, if at any point in this year you said, what is wrong with our world? If at any point you said that, and I said it, then it is, it is on us to say, I want to grow, I want to change. And here's why that idea at New Year's has everything to do with Christmas, because as I said to you a few weeks ago, Christmas was the sign and the signal that God was actually going to change the world, that it was the sign of something new, that rather than just look ahead and say, you know what, it's going to be same old, and that, you know, January 7th, 2019, I'm going to look back and say, well, I try, but same old me, maybe a little more crotchety, a little older, Christmas says, no, God actually didn't plan to sort of make the world just a slightly better version of the older version, but that God actually introduced something entirely new that was meant to change humanity, right? Christmas celebrates the birth of the new humanity, the new person. If you, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, we said, that's what we're celebrating, not like baby Jesus in a manger, but God beginning to change the way the human race would actually live by bringing himself, his own son into the world and, and actually being a human on display for all to see. And amazingly, though Jesus never traveled more than 100 miles from where he grew up, though he never held office, though he uh, never was a wealthy person, though he died far too early by most people's standards, he has literally been put on display for the whole world to see. The Bible is the most read, most printed, most published book in the world, and at the center of the scriptural story is Jesus and the four biographies of his life, and now he has been put on display, not just as a hero, but as God saying, look it, this is how you are meant to live. And Jesus becomes the new person, and amazingly, if you read, I just started reading again in the Gospel of Luke, so, so um, Neil read for us from the book of Acts, you know how it says at the beginning, um, in my former book, Theophilus. So Luke is one of the biographical writers of Jesus. He wrote, his former book is the Gospel of Luke, and the second book is the book of Acts. And the first book is the life of Jesus, and the second one is what happened to people when Jesus actually got hold of them, the, the story of the church. But it, I just started reading Luke again, and it begins to describe, you know, after the, like, the birth accounts of Jesus, they're actually pretty small, like a couple chapters, and then it launches into his life. And if you begin to read his life, this is the picture of the new humanity that you get. And I want you to think about this, not just in terms of who Jesus is, but what if human beings, what if you and I acted like this? Look at this. He was, we see kindness and compassion and love. Jesus, the new human, love for enemies. You know, when he says, like, turn the other cheek, he didn't just say, you know, love your neighbor. You know, you've heard it say to me, don't just love your neighbor, love your enemies as well. And then he actually did it. The power to resist temptation. We see Jesus actually able to resist the temptation of the enemy, of the evil one. 
power to heal sickness and diseases, authority over sin and over evil and the dark world, words that gave wisdom and life and humility and grace in a person. This is not just Jesus we celebrate, in a sense, as the superhuman, but as the new picture of humanity, which is why Christmas has everything to do with New Year's, because as you and I look out and say, well, what am I going to be and who am I, what am I going to do and who am I going to become in the year ahead? Jesus actually gives us a picture of this is what it looks like to be human, to be full of kindness, compassion, and love, to have love even for enemies, to have power to resist temptation in your life, to break old habits, to have power to heal sickness, to pray for people who are sick and see them healed, to have power to heal and over diseases, to have authority over sin, to be able to forgive each other's sins, to have authority over this evil world that seems to be so dark and so in control, to have words that give wisdom to other people when they come to us and say, what should I do about this or what should I do about that, to have words to give our spouse or our family members or our parents or our children to have words to give our coworkers or the people that work for us and work with us, to have words that give life and not death, to have humility and grace. This is the picture of the people you and I were meant to be as we begin to look into the new year. But here's Christianity's dirty little secret. It's been 2,000 years, and why are we still so much unlike Jesus? It's been 2,000 years since he came, since he actually gave us the picture of humanity. You know, many people, and maybe, maybe you checked out of church for a long time, or maybe you have friends and people or people that are in your family that would never come with you here, and one of the main reasons they would give is like, oh, religion, religious people are hypocrites. They say one thing, they do another. Christians are hypocrites. Maybe you grew up in a home where you felt like you saw certain things taught, but you didn't see them lived out. You were like, forget that. It does seem 2,000 years later that it's still very, very hard to actually do the things that Jesus asked us to do. That it's we, and I don't even use the word Christian anymore when people ask me, say, I'm not religious, I'm a follower of Jesus, but quite frankly, I find it hard to follow him. I find it hard to imitate his life. And if we're honest about it, many of us have been following for a long time and there are things in our life we say, how come I cannot actually do this? Dallas Willard in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, he's talking, he talks about like how we think that actually what we're meant to be like in Jesus is in the moment of being criticized by our enemy that we would show them love. In the moment of facing temptation that we would be strong over it. In the moment of you know, having an opportunity to pray for someone that we would pray and see results. In the moment of um, having an opportunity to show pride that we would show humility that somehow we would perform in the moment and become like Jesus. And he says this, this is a false approach to following Christ and it has counterparts through human life. Listen, it is part of the misguided and whimsical condition of humankind that we so devoutly believe in the power of effort at the moment of action alone to accomplish what we want and completely ignore the need for character change in our lives as a whole. The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. Let me read that again before we go on. The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the time, same time not to commit to the kind of life 
that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it reality. He goes on to say, and his point is, we cannot just try to live like Jesus. We actually have to train to live like Jesus. Trying, effort, will is important, but it's not enough by itself that there's actually a kind of way of living that we need to adopt in order to become the people we want, rather than just trying hard to somehow be that person in the moment of temptation, in the moment of crisis, in the moment of an ethical decision, in the moment of how to respond to someone who has criticized us, in the moment of someone needing something from us and we feel as if we do not have what they need to give. Effort alone will never do, and it's actually not what Jesus intended for us. Um, a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to do something that I have been planning to do for um, six years. So when, um, when Noah was six, our oldest son, a bunch of us were in a course called Men's Fraternity here at, at the church, and they were talking about um, how as a North American culture, we sort of lost the idea of rites of passage for men especially. And so that's why we have this prolonged season now called adolescence where boys can still be boys but somehow still be men. Like, so we have a whole bunch of men in the world who still act like boys um, because there's this prolonged season of adolescence where he said every other culture and in the past has said, no, you move from childhood into a season where you become a man. And so he talked about sort of marking the transition of life as a boy, um, you know, turns 12 and moves into 13 and so forth. And so I had in my mind, I'm like, okay, when he does that, I'm gonna, we're going to go somewhere. I'm going to make it, like, mark it as, like, a rite of passage. So, a couple, like, four years ago, I said to him, what do you want to do? He said, I want to see an NFL game. Never been to an NFL game. So, I said, okay, we'll do that. So, this past December, we had a chance to drive down to Indianapolis and go to the game. And we were about 30 rows up from the field. And he and I were, like, giddy little schoolgirls, even though it was a men's trip. Like, we just, like, we were so close. And when the, you know, like, the, there's, like, horses riding out in the field. There's fireworks going off. There's like people have been there for hours um, drinking, uh, which we didn't do. That wasn't part of the rite of passage. But we were close enough to the field. We saw like the NFL crew was doing their pregame stuff. And then when the game happens and you're almost at field level, the speed of the game is incredible. And, you know, he still is in the phase where you know, he's dreaming about potentially becoming one of those people. I, of course, know that's never going to happen to me. You know, I had to let that go. Um, but watch, because I was, like, when I watched the NFL, I'm like, I would love to be a wide receiver. You watch what they do and the patterns they run, and, and the, just the sheer athleticism is mind-blowing. And uh, I was... Uh, it was incredible just to see it all happen, and they're in the lights, and it was a nationally televised game, and their faces are on the screen, and the replays, and like millions of people around the world are watching them do what they do. Well, the cool thing was the next day, we actually had the opportunity to go to their training facility. And so we walked through their locker room and their weight room, and it was kind of, it was cool, but it was kind of sobering because you realize, whoa, like we saw an hour of their life the night before, but like you walk into their room and you think guys who play football, they're just big, dumb people who push stuff around. You should see the whiteboards, that the stuff they have to memorize. 
and the plays and then the weight room, and then the whole nutritionist table of everything they have to eat and they're not allowed to eat and they're literally given the stuff to eat when they walk out of the room. And there's plunge pools and then in each of their locker, there's tons of tape and ointments and braces and all of this stuff to keep their bodies together. And at one moment as we were leaving, we had the opportunity to actually go out onto the practice field and nobody was there and the lights were on. And Noah and I were like, whipped off our jackets, went in, found a football. And I, this, I took a video of it, so I, wa I want you to see it. I would like to tell you we staged that, but we didn't, okay? <clears throat> you should also know I was just wearing street shoes. I had no cleats, there, and there were a lot better clips. <clears throat> See, I will never be a wide receiver in the NFL. <laughs> because I don't train like one, and I never have, and there's other reasons. But, right, in a sense, it's a picture of how we think about faith that somehow, like, faith is hoping to be someone. Like, the strength of my faith that somehow if I believe it enough, I will become like that. I could stare at that game on Thursday Night Football on national television. I could watch it over and over and over again and believe in my heart, one day I'm going to do that. And if that's all I do, it will never happen. I could try. I could go onto that field every night and try to do what they did. And it will never happen because I've never trained for it. Actually, one season, they had a strike, a player's strike, and so the, but the teams didn't want to close, so they actually allowed people to walk on and just play. And if you ever Google it, you watch, there are videos of these, like big guys, who strong guys who thought they could play the game, and most of the time, they're like this. <sighs> Why? Because they had never trained. And so often, I think we think about our lives with Jesus like that, that there's trying I'm going to try to be better this year. I'm going to try to have self-control. I'm going to try to fight temptation. I'm going to try to respond properly to my boss or my spouse or my child or to this situation or to a, this financial crisis. I'm going to try. And if I try, somehow it'll get better. And yet, if we don't train, trying will never get us there. You might say, well, what does that mean? Like trying, if we just try to live like Jesus, without training, we can't. You know, if you read the Gospels, I started reading the Gospel of Luke, you see all these things that Jesus is doing, incredible things. Like he's speaking with such authority and power that he's drawing people from, from like inside religious circles and outside religious circles, from people who knew the scriptures well and people who had never really understood it themselves, people from, you know, sort of high social class and people of low esteem. They were just coming to him. His words were like, you know, the even, even now still the words of Jesus are unsurpassed in history. So he, he spoke with such incredible words. He was casting out demons. He was showing power over evil. He was showing such incredible compassion to all kinds of people. He's healing people. And in the middle, and it's so easy to look at that kind of life in a sense and say, oh yeah, that would be amazing. And we miss this because look what um, Luke says in chapter 5, verse 16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. In the middle of all of this stuff, the in the moment, the at the moment, what seems to be superpowers, we, Luke just throws in this little line. 
And he doesn't say sometimes and once Jesus prayed. He said, but Jesus often left all of the doing to pray. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places. I, you read that verse before? Did we just pass it over? What does it even mean? Why would Jesus need to pray? Right, because we think prayer is kind of this transaction thing, like, God, I need this. Can you do this for me? Whatever. But Jesus seemed to have a ministry life, and we look at all of the stuff he was doing in the moment, and we miss the fact that Luke says, actually, often he left. Often we couldn't find him. There are stories, actually, about the disciples, like, it's going amazing, and they're thinking, whoa, like, this is amazing. We are on the big stage, and then they're looking around, like, where did Jesus go? They can't find him because he had left to go pray. We know about the, you know, the, the, one of the most, probably the most significant thing he did in the book of Luke was choose his 12 disciples who would become, you know, our, our ancestors, basically the founders of the church. And we know how he went and called them. And if you've read the stories, he goes and calls different ones to be disciples. But you know what he did before he did that? He stayed up the entire night praying. He actually spent the whole night praying. Luke 6, 12 to 13. One of those days... Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also dedicated, designated apostles. It would seem to me that if we look at the life of Jesus, we will find that he was not only actually doing and in the moment, but in fact, his life in the moment was fueled by his private practice of prayer. That Jesus himself, the son of God, did not think to live life without actually training for it in prayer. That he regularly left what he was doing to be in God's presence. He regularly left what he was doing. And we can think, okay, well, if if prayer isn't, if Jesus didn't need to pray because he was God, then prayer clearly isn't something about like transaction. There's something else that's going on in the life of Jesus that somehow his connection with God, his relationship with God, his intimacy with God, his dependence on God was actually the keystone habit that changed his life. And so if you and I only look at the stuff that he did in the moment and somehow, I think I could just try by faith to be like Jesus, it will never do unless we actually train like Jesus. You cannot live the life that Jesus lived without praying the way Jesus did. That is the life we've been called to live. And I wonder, I wonder about my own life. If perhaps some of the ways that I actually fail to be like Jesus or not because I don't try enough, but because I don't train enough, I don't pray enough, that I actually am trying to follow Jesus without actually living the life he did. Not the front center stage life, but the lonely places, often praying to God. Which is why when you read about the early church and their story, Right? Luke's first volume is about Jesus' life. His second volume is about the Jesus followers. Over 31 times you will hear references to prayer. So like Jesus comes right to earth and he's like, I'm going to change humanity. And he calls these 12 apostles together. And you would think 
if they thought, okay, we're going to live like he did, and that he did all that stuff, let's get together and make a plan, and who's going to go where, and let's, let's put out a sign to get the sick people to come here so we can start healing them, because that's what Jesus did, and let's go preach in all these places. But look what it says they did, and Neil read it for us. Right after he died, he uh, ascended, he died, rose again, and ascended into heaven, they all met together. It says he was there with the, with the disciples, the male disciples that followed him, the women disciples that followed him, his mother and his brothers, which by the way, you think like, what's the proof that Jesus was actually the son of God? Well, his brother is probably the most powerful testimony because who knows who you really are? The people you grew up with. And his brothers actually went from saying, who are you to talk like that? To at the end of his life, and when he rose from the dead, they were the ones in the room who said, we believe now. And look what they did first. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. There was a handful of them, 50, 100 people maybe, who had become convinced and who he had gathered together and said, go into all the world and teach people to follow me. And the very first thing they did, not just once, it said they met and constantly prayed together. And if you know the story of the church, <clears throat> 10 days later, after the Holy Spirit had fallen on them, there were 3,000 of them, 10 days later, 50, 100 of them praying constantly. God sends his Holy Spirit to them saying, like, this is my spirit that is going to live in you and with you and give you the power to live the life that I've called you to live. And 10 days later, there's over 3,000 people and the church is born. And look what it says the church did at the end of Acts chapter 2. It's a summary description of what happened to this community of people who didn't just try like Jesus, who trained like him, who actually prayed together. Look what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which wasn't just spoke, spoken to communion or the host, but actually to like eating meals together, and to Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their, num to their number daily those who were being saved. They actually began to live like Jesus. There were miracles happening. They were connected together. The Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. But it says this, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to like being together, to breaking bread together, and to prayer. We cannot live the life Jesus did without praying the way that Jesus did. The church understood that, and the history of the church is it is a community that is devoted to prayer. Now, this week, as I was kind of just preparing for this message, because it's our week of prayer that starts tomorrow, this Sunday is typically the one where, where I just speak on prayer and invite us together as a church. I started reading a book of a pastor who was um, called into a pastor of a church that was just kind of dying, and it was like 20 people and didn't seem like people wanted to be there. 
And he said he had this moment where he just came to God and said, I, I can't do this. And God said to him, if you, if you pray, I will do everything that you're trying to do and can't make happen yourself. And I was reading that book, and I turned the page, and I just started crying because I, I think I want that for our church. I know I want that for myself. I want us to be a community that understands there are things that we are trying to do in our lives as individuals or as a community that only God can do. And what we are called to do is actually be, and we are a community who is devoted to teaching and worship. Like we have over 200 people now that come every Sunday. We are a community that's devoted to fellowship and breaking of bread. Not just sort of communion that we're going to celebrate this morning, but there's over 130 or 140 people who are in home groups, who are in each other's home. And so many of you are connecting and going together, but we have about 16 people who come out to prayer once a month. We're not devoted to prayer. We're devoted to teaching and worship and to each other, which is good. The scriptures say that the history of the church was that it was a community that was also devoted to prayer. And you know what? I'm not being critical. That, I think that's kind of how most churches are. But the world needs us to be different than most churches are. In many ways, the world is the way it is. Not because people are evil and rejected God, but because the church <laughs> is not what it is meant to be. The scriptures actually tell us when the church is devoted to teaching and worship and each other and prayer that the Lord adds to the number and there are miraculous signs happening in our midst. And I know we are a church that loves Jesus. I know we're a church that has a desire to grow and understands that we can't just do what we did last year. I think the reason I was crying is I was thinking like, you know, I think our giving came in at 540,000 this year, which is incredible. You, could, you, could, you should um, praise God for that. Thank you so much for giving and for trusting God and seeing like, and, and I felt like God saying, VG, I can, these are small things. I can provide for the church. I can, and you can spend time as a staff planning and figuring out where you go, but that's not actually what is going to make the impact and the difference in the world that you want to see. I'm actually calling you to depend on me. You can have buildings, you can have attendance, you can have cash in the bank, but that's not what actually changes the world around you. And you know that's not how you're actually transformed. It is by knowing me more, depending on me more, wanting more of my power and my spirit in you, and depending less on your own effort in the moment. And I want that for us as a church. We got this office now that's like 10,000 square feet, and I started to pray, and we started to pray as a staff, God, what do you want to do with this space? We're actually in the place now where we could literally fit every single person in our church for a prayer meeting. We couldn't have done that a year ago. So I'm like, great, let's do that. Like, let's actually grow in becoming a community that is devoted to God's presence in prayer. What do you want to become in 2018? Not what do you want to do? You know, there's things you have to do and there's certain things you, but who do you want to become in 2018? The world around you, your family, your friends, the people are depending on you becoming more and more like Jesus. And how is that going to happen? How is it going to happen for us as a church? How is that going to happen in my life that I'll become more like Jesus? Yes, trying, but also training.
which is why every week we start with the week of prayer. And this is really just a place to begin to learn how to train to become more like Jesus. Um, I was thinking, you know, there's lots of things I could say to you. Oh, you should really come to Sunday service. It would be great. But maybe it wouldn't be great. Like maybe, maybe you wouldn't like the sermon or you wouldn't like the music that morning or whatever. But the one thing I can say to you is this. I know if you come to pray, you will leave being touched by God. And every one of you has been to one of our prayer meetings before. You know that's true. I feel the same way you do. Everything in me is going, I'd rather just stay at home tonight. But I have to go because I'm leading it. <laughs> Sometimes that's all the faith I have, which is zero faith, just duty. And yet God knows this is greatest gift to me. I say to him after God, I, thank, thank you so much for calling me to be a pastor because I got to be here tonight. And I probably wouldn't have any other way. So I understand your life. And I was spent more of my life not as a pastor, as a pastor. So I understand all of the things that work against us in this area. But it's the one thing I can tell you, come. God does things in our life through prayer. Things can shift in an hour of prayer that will never happen in a year or 10 years. I don't know how it happens. I just know that it does. It's the one place, it's the one act where we realize this is not about me and this does not depend on me. You are in control. And I trust you. It's the one act we do where we have stopped trying to do stuff and start trusting him. We've actually put our dependence on him. And so this year, we're actually doing something a little bit different. The five days of the week, um, the first day we're actually getting together just to kind of celebrate and praise and give thanks to what God has done. And so some of that is just to come and hear how God has been at work in the lives of the people around you. So that's, that's Monday. And then Tuesday is uh, women's prayer night. And so if you're a woman, just come out, and uh, that, that night has already been planned for you. Guys, night, guys' prayer night out is Wednesday. Thursday, we're actually inviting our junior high and senior high to join us to pray with them and for them and to have them pray for us. They don't know that yet. Some of you senior highs, I just told you. Let's cut out of the back. No, but to actually be together as, and to say we're a multi-generational church, and there are things like do we get to pray for our kids as they are in their schools and they're in their high schools, and they get to pray for us as we are dealing with the things we're dealing with in our jobs and in our world. And then Friday night is the coolest night. Like, that's a night where we're just doing prayer ministry for each other. So you have a chance to be prayed for, to be prayer for healing or receive prophetic words from God and just, like, have God speak in your life through the prayers of other people. And so I'd encourage you, if you've never been, you can come and just sit and watch and listen, which actually make it a place where you begin to learn and say, I don't want to just try. And you may say, well, I don't know how to pray. Yeah, that's, that's, that's why you come to a prayer meeting. You don't come because you know how to do it. You get to be there and be with other people. And I say, bring a friend. Like, I don't know if you've ever gone to the gym for the first time or gone back to the gym the first time in a long time. It's a terrible feeling, right? Because you walk in and like, especially if it's your first time, there's all these machines that look like they're going to kill you or something like that. And you're like, I don't know how to use it. Is there any just like a weight that I could pick up and just kind of do this in the corner? Like, and everybody seems to know what they're doing, but most people don't, right? Most people are injuring themselves and they don't know it yet. And you're saving yourself from that, right? But sometimes we can feel like that when we come into prayer going, I don't know how to do this. So bring a friend, right? Like if you've ever gone to the gym, you just go with a friend. It's better because you kind of look like, well, we'll just stay together, right? But then there'll be actually people here who are like, we're preparing to lead you through that. So actually, it would be like going to the gym and then with a friend and then with people who are already doing it, saying, hey, come, I'll show you. I, you're not expected to know how any of this works, but let's actually just do this together. 
And maybe you're someone who has made this. I know many of you have made this week like a commitment for you. We come every night, bring somebody with you, drag them out there. It is the best thing you could do for them. Even if you think, I don't even think this person believes in God, fine, let them come and actually let God prove himself to them himself. To make it a place where we actually grow and learn together. To train together to become the people that we want to be. One of the things it says that the church was devoted to was the breaking of bread. And as I said to you, that was not only, um, that, was, that was eating together in each other's homes, which I think we're really good at as a church. Um, but this is also something that they were devoted to was the breaking of bread. It was a remembering that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. And he took a cup. He said, this, this cup of wine, this thing that you, wine is such an ordinary part of life. I want you to never see it the same way again. This is my blood that is actually shed for you. The really cool thing when we come together and, and like take this is, this is not just you receiving what Jesus has done for you. This is actually a common loaf. Like the, you're going to come and take pieces of bread from the same loaf that other people in this place are going to take bread from, which basically says this, we share in this together. You are not the only one that is frustrated with your own life. You are not the only one that feels like, why can't I be the person I want to be? You are not the only one that comes with sins and addictions that need to be forgiven and broken from the year. You're not the only one. We come together. You know, sometimes we experience this kind of communion thing as this sort of private, somehow I'm not supposed to talk to anyone and I can't really look at other people. No, like we're doing this together. This is a common meal from a common loaf that we say, we are in this together. I share this with you, this desire to see more of Jesus in my life. I share this desire to, to be more disciplined in my prayer life, to actually train better instead of just trying harder. I'm with you in this. I'm taking this with you. I'm not an expert who's arrived. I'm just someone who's coming with you saying out loud what is true about all of us. That's why we take this together. And so the elders and I are going to serve you this morning. And as you come, I just want you to not just only be conscious of the fact that Jesus is saying, I've given my life for you. This is actually my life in yours. But I've given you all these people to do this with. So you're not alone. You get to pray together. You get to learn together. You get to train together and try together. So don't be discouraged this morning about what happened this past year what you didn't accomplish or what you failed to do. But don't just let naive optimism lead you into the year. Stop in this moment and say, Jesus, I need you and I need, I need you. If you want to go with someone and take it together, you say, can you help me this year? If you're with, here, here with someone you're married to, do it with them. If you're here with a friend, do it together. If you're here with the, one of your kids or whatever, take this together and say, we're in this together. Would you do that? Worship team's going to come and lead us, and when you're ready, just please come.